Hello and welcome to Further Up and Further In, a podcast. This is now episode 28 of the podcast, in which we will look at chapter 6 of Prince Caspian, titled The People That Lived in Hiding. And the story picks up here from where we left off in chapter 5 with Trumpkin preparing to lead Prince Caspian to go meet the others, that there are many creatures living in this sort of underground resistance against King Miraz, uh, these old Narnians that Caspian is going to meet. And as we'll find out at the end of this chapter, the gathering of these Narnians and their allegiances to Caspian will ultimately uh, come to a war. Uh, that although Caspian does not realize it yet, by the end of the chapter, he will be told uh, that this uh, this time, this appointment with all these creatures, with all these Narnians, is uh, prudent. It is it is wise in the preparation for a great battle against King Miraz. And in that way, there's some similarity to what we saw in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where Father Christmas meets Peter and Susan and Lucy and gives them gifts uh, that are all uh, martial, uh, most of them at least, um, the horn and the cordial maybe being accepted. But Peter receives a sword, Susan receives a bow and an arrow, Lucy receives a dagger. That These are the tools of maturation. This is the equipment that they will need in order to come into their full uh, kingship and queenship. The, to be kings and queens of Narnia, they must be prepared and we've seen in Prince Caspian that preparation is extensive, that Dr. Cornelius would lead Caspian up to the tall tower and educate him uh, in the deepest sense of the word. He would equip him, prepare him for his full identity as a future king. He will equip him with a love for the old stories. We've talked about that throughout this uh, novel that what Prince Caspian needs as a boy is a love for the old things, which he and Dr. Cornelius share. But what he also needs is uh, sword fighting skills, um, skills of logic and reason, uh, a deep sense of faith and belief in the goodness of his cause, uh, leadership skills to be able to uh, lead this community of Narnians. That Caspian's education is a central element of this story and a central reminder to the reader that how we live and how we think and how we love is formative. It is educational. It is arranging and forming our desires, which will equip us for life and which will in many ways determine the life that we lead, uh, how virtuous and wise and just and patient and loving is our life. Uh, and so Caspian here is receiving, not just from Dr. Cornelius, but now from uh, Truffle Hunter, from Trumpkin, and then ultimately, as we'll see, from Glenstorm and from Reapacheep and all these new characters, equipment for living. He is uh, seeing the stories he loved for so long in his life come true. And in the coming true of those stories, he's being prepared and being strengthened and being equipped for his role. Uh, the destiny that lies before him, the story that he must live out in his own uh, days and in his own choices. So in chapter six, we uh, begin with a, a great sentence from Lewis that says, now began the happiest times that Caspian had ever known, which is an important tone to set for this chapter because, as I said, by the end of the chapter, Caspian will discover that he is being prepared for war, a war which he must lead. 
a war uh, where the, over his own kingdom, the kingdom that's rightfully his. And the allegiances and the loyalties that he's discovering with these old Narnians is one in which he is the authority figure. Now, remember, he, he's a boy. This is Prince Caspian, not King Caspian. The title of the novel matters. Uh, this is Prince Caspian. And in fact, there are uh, critics who have uh, called this book and the two that follow the Caspian Trilogy. Uh, let me read here from uh, Peter Shackle, a, a note that he has made. He says this, The ending, while unifying the plot and themes of the book, does not complete the story of the title character's growth. He's talking about the ending of Prince Caspian. Prince Caspian describes Caspian's initiation and the first steps toward his maturity. Lewis subordinates his title character in the second half of the book in order to allow his continued growth in maturity, knowledge of Aslan, and trust in Aslan to occur in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, the second book of the Caspian trilogy. And then in the silver chair, obviously Caspian's story will be completed and it will be extended to his son, Rillian. But it's important to note that Caspian's development and his maturity over time, Lewis is patient with. Uh, we don't have Caspian taking the full measure of his kingdom in this story. That we see him taking measured steps toward his reign and toward the person that he is to become. Uh, the person he is destined to become, what the design that Aslan has written for him. Uh, but this is Prince Caspian. And so uh, we get to, to journey along with Caspian in this measured and methodical path toward his own fruition, just as in our own lives. The persons that we are destined to become, we do not become overnight. Uh, we become through this journey. Uh, it's much like The Hobbit, where we have a road that lies before us and it's a road that takes many turns, but we have to take those turns in order. We have to take them as they come. We can't simply leap from one station to another. Uh, we must take the, the good, the bad, the high and the low as they are proportioned to us uh, in the wisdom of Aslan, in the wisdom of God. And so for, for Caspian here, the beginning of the chapter, it's the happiest times Caspian had ever known, but they will also become quite difficult times. Um, and that, yet that combination is central, though, that even in the struggle, there can be joy. Even in the difficulty of our path, there is a sense of merriment and a sense of pleasure we can take at the adventure itself, at knowing that we are taking the quest that we have been summoned to take. So in this chapter, we will be introduced to some new characters. We'll see Pattertwig, the squirrel, who in the subsequent chapters will play a key role as a messenger of Caspian's. Once he blows Susan's horn, he'll send Pattertwig uh, to the lamppost, to Lantern Waste, to see if anybody's there. We're going to meet Glenstorm, the centaur, one of the noblest creatures in Narnia, according to Caspian. And then we will also be introduced to perhaps one of the most endearing and most popular characters in all of the Chronicles of Narnia, that is Reepicheep, the mouse, uh, which will... He has one line in this chapter, but he will become a key character in this book. And then uh, most certainly in the voyage of the Dawn Treader, that he will occupy one of the uh, most gorgeous and uh, most uh, melancholy, but also splendid scenes in Narnia when he sails into Aslan's country at the end of the voyage of the Dawn Treader. But this chapter too focuses on uh, the beauty of community, the beauty of unity, 
and loyalty. Uh, that linking arms with fellow creatures, even if those creatures are quite different from you, becomes a central point of focus for Lewis here. Devin Brown talks about this in, in his one of his books, that um, the, the sense of community drawn from diversity is a key theme for Lewis. That in this chapter, we'll meet a squirrel, a centaur, a talking mouse, red dwarves, black dwarves, and all other creatures, and yet many of them will swear allegiance to a single king, the son of Adam, uh, King Caspian. The, the bulgy bears uh, agree to, uh, to pledge their allegiance to Caspian. Uh, the red dwarfs do as well. They're skeptical at first, but they pledge their allegiance as well. Truffle Hunter has already uh, agreed that a son of Adam is meant to be on the throne. That you see, unlike Miraz's rather prosaic and dull uh, kingdom, quote unquote, this uh, column of power, this kingdom of complete authoritarianism and totalitarianism, what we see in the old Narnians is this colorful arrangement of diversity, uh, especially depicted at the end of the chapter on the dancing lawn when the fawns come and dance. That in that dance, there is a beautiful kaleidoscopic display this brilliant display of difference, that these creatures are distinct from one another. Their gifts that they give Caspian are distinct. Uh, their characteristics, their, their natures are distinct. And yet there is union and there is loyalty and there is camaraderie and community in uh, their values, in the center of their culture, which is Aslan's code, which is a belief in the prophecies of old, a belief and a deep-seated faith in Caspian as the one true king uh, to defeat Miraz, uh, and then of course Aslan's lordship over all of it. And so at the beginning of this chapter, Caspian is led uh, to across Narnia. They have to be careful, of course, to avoid Miraz's men, um, but they meet Pattertwig. They meet the bulgy bears first. Uh, it's a rather humorous uh, moment. They meet Pattertwig, the squirrel, and then they meet the seven brothers of Shuddering Wood. Uh, this is uh, a set of seven red dwarves, uh, which uh, Devin Brown again also comments on how Lewis and his brother Warney had seen Walt Disney's Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, uh, the movie in 1939. And uh, he remarks that they weren't all that impressed with what Disney did. It was a, a vulgarization of dwarves, Lewis thought in Disney's film. So in here we get seven dwarves that are uh, working in this underground smithy and they are a bit more of Lewis's dwarves. Uh, they're hardened, earthy men who pledge their allegiance to Caspian. But in these introductions, there's a, there's a common note. Obviously, the bears are different from Pattertwig. Pattertwig is different from the red dwarves. The red dwarves are, in, in many interesting ways, different from the black dwarves. We've seen that with Trumpkin and, Nick, and Nickabrick, how they are foils of one another. Um, but in this sequence, there is a common thread here of this medieval notion of chivalry that, that Lewis adored. Um, there is an emphasis on courtesies, welcomings, invitations. Uh, there is a great emphasis on excellence and honor, nobility, industry, uh, gift giving. I mentioned that already with Father Christmas from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where there is a gift giving as a, uh, a notion of uh, courtesy and, and welcome, that these uh, children are welcomed into Narnia under Aslan's move, and they are given gifts. 
Tumnus offers uh, tea and cakes to Lucy. The beavers offer a meal to the Pevensies. Um, here, as the as Caspian meets all these creatures, there is a a language of chivalry that Lewis uses throughout each of these encounters, um, that they are welcomed, that they are invited. There is talk of friendship, of gift, of workmanship, of nobility, of promises made, uh, allegiances sworn, and so on. That this is a subterranean mood that Lewis establishes that separates the old Narnians from the Telmarines. The Telmarines are those who rampage the natural world. They fell trees, they defile the rivers, uh, they set up this uh, tyranny that forces the Narnians underground. Um, the Narnians have as a marker to their characteristics and a marker to their identities, this notion of manner and love for the fellow man and camaraderie and loyalty which is another marker of Lewis's love of community here, that, that there is something that binds them together that doesn't need to be said. It is this shared expectation of value that comes across in feastings, councils, uh, conversation, pledges, um, swearings of loyalty, and so on. Uh, it's a beautiful marker. They, they uh, it's a beautiful marker of what separates these Narnians from the dumb beasts, which is another difference that Lewis weaves here. That there is a difference between Reepicheep, the talking mouse, and Pattertwig, the talking squirrel, and the ordinary dumb beasts. That there's something about the sentience, the intelligence, and so on of the old Narnians. That along with it comes a code, a code of conduct, uh, an expectation of chivalry. Uh, neighborliness, good citizenship of Narnia, that they steward their resources well, that they are wise and industrious, but also uh, generous and charitable. Um, a beautiful portrayal of what uh, community done right looks like. That even in a time of oppression and a time of difficulty uh, and fear, yet the greater uh, description, the greater uh, portrayal for these creatures is their loving kindness and their, their sense of duty and obligation and their commitment to it. Finally, we meet the black dwarfs. This is Nicobrick's kind. Uh, they, unlike the red dwarfs, are less open to uh, seeing Caspian as the king. And there's a section here that's worthy of reading because it's quite uh, revealing of the black dwarfs and it's revealing of Nicobrick. Uh, who is the key figure of the Black Dwarfs that we have now. And it starts here. A little farther on, in a dry, rocky ravine, they reached the cave of five Black Dwarfs. They looked suspiciously at Caspian, but in the end, the eldest of them said, If he is against Miraz, we'll have him for king. And the next oldest said, Shall we go farther up for you, up to the crags? There's an ogre or two and a hag that we could introduce you to up there. Certainly not, said Caspian. I should think not indeed, said Truffle Hunter. We want none of that sort on our side. Nicobrick disagreed with this, but Trumpkin and the badger overruled him. It gave Caspian a shock to realize that the horrible creatures out of the old stories, as well as the nice ones, had some descendants in Narnia still. We should not have Aslan for a friend, if we brought in that rabble, 
said Truffle Hunter as they came away from the cave of the Black Dwarfs. Oh, Aslan, said Trumpkin, cheerily but contemptuously. What matters much more is that you wouldn't have me. Do you believe in Aslan? said Caspian to Nickabrick. I'll believe in anyone or anything, said Nickabrick, that'll batter these cursed Telmarine barbarians to pieces or drive them out of Narnia. Anyone or anything, Aslan or the White Witch. Do you understand? Now, this is a, a really significant uh, description here of what Caspian encounters with these dwarfs and with Nickabrick's declaration there at the end. The first thing is this, um, this sense of pragmatism that the Black Dwarfs uh, pledge to follow Caspian's uh, reign and his kingdom as long as he is against Murat's. As long as he does what they want, then they'll follow him, which, you know, there's the following to that, that if he no longer does what they want, then their allegiance will shift, which is not a submission to authority. Long live the king is a submission to authority. What they have here is as long as you give us what we want, as long as you do what we say, long live the king. Uh, our our uh, loyalty is conditional. Our loyalty is... Um, settled on our own demands, which is not submission at all, that their authority is still themselves, which prefigures a statement about the dwarfs in the last battle in the final book that will be quite meaningful when, when they uh, declare that the dwarfs are for the dwarfs, that they will only care for their own. This is the antithesis of right community. This is isolation and self-centeredness where as long as we get what we want, we'll pitch in. But the second we're unhappy, then we are out. And that um, is treasonous in Lewis's world. That, that is the central tear at the fabric of community, where uh, whether it is a honest self-centeredness that just uh, negates the whole project of community and abdicates any, any sort of obligation altogether, or this veiled sense of submission and selflessness where I'll be compassionate and I'll be considerate as long as I'm happy, as long as I'm getting what I want, or I will obey and respect your authority as long as it agrees with me. That's the same as maintaining your own authority and your own autonomy. And that's what Nickabrick has here is his own authority. And they might, uh, they might gloss it over with this respect for Caspian, for now, but uh, when push comes to shove, the dwarfs are for the dwarfs. And that is a pragmatic and self-centered approach that is dehumanizing, that is fundamentally opposed to the kind of brotherhood and organic body um, that Lewis seems to promote, but also scripture promotes, that uh, we are to serve one another in love and in kindness. By this, all men will know you're my disciples if you love one another. But here, the dwarfs are for the dwarfs. That statement, as long as you do what we want, then we'll follow you, is fundamentally disconnected. It, it, it at the foundational level, breaks apart any bond or any sense of union we might have with one another, where we are serving our own selves. The deeper problem with pragmatism here is this sort of Machiavellian uh, tendency that the dwarves have where, and Nickabrick, and his, I'll read it again in a moment, his statement in answer to Caspian's question about Aslan is, is quite revealing, 
where they're willing to go get ogres and hags to help them fight the battle. And uh, Truffle Hunter and others say, no, we don't want, we don't want any of that sort on our side. We, this is the good versus the evil. And we don't want to partner with evil to conquer evil. Uh, Romans says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That you, you cannot um, co-opt particular powers of evil in order to destroy evil. All that does is make two evil sides. Um, all that does is dilute the light and dilute the goodness into a different version of evil. All that can overcome evil is good. So Truffle Hunter says we don't want ogres and hags. Uh, we do not want to partner with evil in the conquering of evil. That doesn't make sense. We can't do that. Um, and he says we should not have Aslan for a friend if we brought in that rabble, which reminds me of James uh, in James 4, uh, verse 4, when James says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That the, the lines of demarcation here are quite strong. That friendship with the white witch, friendship with ogres and hags, is enmity with Aslan. And so he says, we should not have Aslan for a friend if we brought in that rabble. That uh, it matters who your friends are. Loyalties matter. Allegiances matter. Not just power. Power, at the end of the day, power is not the, uh, the mechanism of wisdom. That we, we cannot pursue wisdom merely by looking at the language of power. We have to look at wisdom through uh, whom we are loyal to, whom we swear allegiance to. Uh, the object of your faith determines the value of your faith. That who, who you worship, who you pledge your allegiance to matters. Your company matters. Um, and here, friendship with Aslan is diametrically opposed to friendship with the White Witch, which we saw in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, that um, the forces of evil and the forces of good are opposed. And you cannot pretend to borrow from the forces of evil and co-opt them into good. Right? What must happen is an utter transformation from evil to good, which is the gospel. We cannot retain our powers of evil and our language of evil and become good. It's a death. We are crucified with Christ and resurrected. That darkness becomes light. It doesn't morph into this hybrid of dark and light. And yet what Nicobrick says when Caspian asks, do you believe in Aslan? Nicobrick says, I'll believe in anyone or anything that'll batter these cursed Telmarine barbarians to pieces or drive them out of Narnia. Anyone or anything. And that is a poisonous phrase. I'll believe in anyone or anything that does what I want them to do. I'll believe in anything as long as it gets me what I want. This is the whatever it takes to win sort of Machiavellianism and pragmatism that is prevalent today and and extraordinarily toxic. All that does is perpetuate your own um, isolated sense of authority. Uh, what Martin Luther called, calls incurvatus in se, being curved into the self. Right, Believing in anything or anyone that will give you what you want, all that does is further 
the curve inward into yourself. That is the fundamental problem of our sinfulness. We are in curvatus in se. We are curved into the self. It's certainly Nicobrick is. And the, I love the way that Lewis embodies individuals who are curved into the self. And for Nicobrick uh, and for Lewis in this chapter, it is not smoking and not dancing, <laughs> which regardless of what you believe about those particular exercises, for Nicobrick to not... Uh, partake in the pleasure of tobacco like Trumpkin and the other dwarfs do, and certainly for him to not dance with the fawns at the end of the chapter, reveals this intemperate heart, this heart that is not balanced. There's no merriment. There's no joy to his life. He doesn't laugh. He doesn't smoke. He doesn't dance. Uh, he is curved into the self, and he will believe in anything that will advance his own desires, his own agenda, rather than believing in something that is strong enough to shape his desires upward, which Aslan does. Aslan is one who shapes the affections, right? Where he's wild, he is, not, uh, he, he is not tame. He's not a tame lion. This is not somebody who will do what you want. He is somebody who will alter your heart to desire what he wants, and glory to God for that. Next, Caspian meets Glenstorm, the centaur, one of the noblest creatures uh, that Caspian encounters. And Lewis doesn't often um, utilize centaurs. So he, he opts for bears and badgers and dwarfs and children and so on. Uh, but Glenstorm here is presented as this majestic creature. He has this grand introduction that Lewis gives him. And he's described as a prophet and a stargazer. Uh, and so he knows he knows why Caspian has come. And it's like the prophecies that the beavers uh, speak about in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Glenstorm here speaks of prophecies as well. He's linked to Dr. Cornelius in that way. And so he says, long live the king uh, to Caspian as he arrives. And he tells Caspian that he has been watching the skies, much like Dr. Cornelius has. Glenstorm says this, the time is ripe, said Glenstorm. I watch the skies, Badger, for it is mine to watch as it is yours to remember. Tarva and Alambil have met in the halls of high heaven, and on earth a son of Adam has once more arisen to rule and name the creatures. The hour has struck. So notice what Glenstorm's saying. We get this uh, repetition from Dr. Cornelius in an earlier chapter where he tells Caspian to study the stars, to see in the skies the portents of what's to come. And these two stars have united in the heavens. There's this great union in the heavens between Tarva and Alambil. And just as a quick aside, I might have done this before, but uh, for anybody who has an, an interest in uh, Lewis's in Narnia and um, all of the depths that Lewis plums in writing the Narnia stories, I highly recommend Planet Narnia by Michael Ward. That book um, is a wondrous book. Uh, so speaking of the stars, um, that book just comes to mind as one that you certainly need to go on Amazon and buy and read and, and mark up with a highlighter. Uh, but Tarva and Alambil, these two stars Dr. Cornelius referenced, referenced earlier, Tarva is the Lord of Victory and Alambil is the Lady of Peace. And Glenstorm, like Cornelius, uh, sees in the heavens this great union, this starry, cosmic uniting between the Lord of Victory and the Lady of Peace. It's almost this marriage between these two stars that shines this um, benediction of good news, this 
prophetic declaration over Narnia. And Glenstorm sees it as well. He's the prophet, the Magi figure. Uh, if you remember from Luke, that the, the Magi study the stars and they see this great declaration of good news um, that pronounces a king, much like Caspian. Uh, and the distance between the word Magi and the word magician or magic is not very far at all. So uh, Lewis is using this beautiful language of um, prophecy, of, uh, of kinghood, uh, of a kingdom to come, of um, good news of great joy, which shall be for all people, that the Lord of victory has united with the lady of peace. And so for Glenstorm, he sees victory as this um, prophetic word of war and peace, victory and peace, that this is good news for the Narnians, but it's good news that comes at a cost. And so they are, in, uh, they are emboldened by this, but also they are aware of the sacrifice to come, that this, the victory and the peace will come through a right and just war. Hence, Glenstorm says, the time is ripe, the hour has struck. Tarva and Alambil have met in the halls of high heaven. That's a sign. And the second sign is that a son of Adam has come to claim the throne. Uh, much like Ker Paravel and the prophecies there, Caspian, the son of Adam, is the rightful heir. This is good news for Narnia, because Truffle Hunter said earlier that Narnia was never right unless a son of Adam was sitting on the throne. And so Glenstorm sees the union of Tarva and Alambil, the Lord of Victory and the Lady of Peace in the high heavens. And he sees the son of Adam has arisen to rule and name the creatures. Uh, that these are two signs of the good news that, have come, that has come to the old Narnians. And right before that, Glenstorm, uh, Caspian asks Glenstorm when he first hears this inkling of war, he hadn't thought that there was going to be a war. Um, but he asks Glenstorm, do you mean a real war to drive Miraz out of Narnia? And Glenstorm says, what else, said the centaur? Why else does your majesty go clad in mail and girt with sword? Which is a reference to the gifts that Caspian had just received from the red dwarfs. Uh, but it also throws back to Father Christmas and the gifts that he had given the children, that Peter, Susan, and Lucy, that these were gifts that were given for a distinct purpose, that they were destined to fulfill, that they must wage war against the white witch. And now Centaur must, uh, Centaur, Caspian must wage war against Miraz. And so, he, so Glenstorm's response to Caspian is, why else would you receive a sword and a shirt of mail? And that's a really sobering question for, for the Christian reader as well. Why should we be trained to wield the sword of the spirit if we are not meant for battle? Why should we wear the, the armor of God if it's not for a distinct purpose of war? That what we do, everything we do, is aimed toward this, this spiritual battle that rages between the kingdom of Christ and the powers of evil. That everything, every choice we make is a choice toward the light or toward the darkness. Every decision we make is a decision outward to love another or a decision inward to love ourselves, like Nicobrick. We are either in curvatus in se, we are either curved into the self, or we are like Christ poured out to another. That's a battle. The, those two um, camps are opposed to one another. And we are called to friendship with God or friendship with the world. And so Caspian here is this moment where perhaps he was a bit naive. 
he's walking around Narnia with a sword and with a chain mail. And he says, we're going to have a war. And Glenstorm says, why, of course, the time is ripe for it. Tarva and Alabil have met in the halls of high heaven. A son of Adam has risen to take the throne. The time is now. We are ready. And finally, the last new character that Caspian meets, um, as I mentioned earlier, is one of the most beloved characters in all of Narnia. That is Reepicheep, the mouse, talking mouse. Lewis describes him as a gay and martial mouse, which I think is such an appropriate description for Reepicheep, the this jovial and uh, jolly mouse, this gay and happy and merry mouse, uh, kind of like Robin Hood, I imagine, but also Marshall, this this mouse that means business. He's described as dashing and graceful. He has one line. He says, there are 12 of us, sire, and I place all the resources of my people unreservedly at your majesty's disposal. And here, of course, in Reepicheep, in the figure of Reepicheep, we have Lewis's, one of Lewis's greatest portrayals of um, of the, the chivalric ideal, this sort of uh, Arthurian knight, uh, this graceful and charitable and courteous, courteous um, gentleman. I want to quote from a Narnia uh, Lewis critic, Doris Myers. Um, she describes Reepicheep as, quote, the Renaissance model of a gentleman, um, a, a one, who can, one who maintains a, a courteous demeanor and demonstrates his courage at every opportunity. Uh, so this is the Renaissance model of a gentleman. This is Reepicheep, the noble and valiant mouse, um, intensely respectable. Um, and and we, we will hear more from Reepicheep as the, as the story goes on. I'll, I'll just leave it at that. But uh, stay tuned at the end of the voyage of the Dawn Treader for one of the greatest scenes with Reepicheep as he sails to Aslan's country. It's... Um, breathtaking. Um, but by the end of the story, they meet for a council at uh, the Dancing Lawn. And Glenstorm says that this council will be a council of war, that they will discuss as Narnians how they will go about overthrowing Miraz and his false kingdom. Um, but Truffle Hunter includes a, a statement here about waking the trees. And this was mentioned earlier in the book about how the spirits of the trees have fallen asleep uh, since Miraz has taken the throne. And Lewis revisits it again, and um, there's a real depth to this reality that the spirits of the trees have fallen asleep. Uh, I'll quote this portion of the chapter. Now, said the badger, if only we could wake the spirits of these trees and this well, we should have done a good day's work. Can't we, said Caspian? No, said Truffle Hunter. We have no power over them. Since the humans came into the land, felling forests and defiling streams, the dryads and naiads have sunk into a deep sleep. Who knows if ever they will stir again. And, th and this is a really important uh, feature of the Narnian landscape. The idea that, that creation itself, all of nature itself is living and active. In The Magician's Nephew, we see Aslan seeing Narnia into being. That uh, the creatures, both great and small, the trees, the rivers, all things that have been made have the breath of Aslan upon them, and therefore they are all linked together. Um, and that's true of our world as well, that all of nature itself is linked in the design of God, that all things have been created by the word of God. Now, humans bear the image of God, and rocks do not, but humans and rocks both have their own duties and their own positions and states to fulfill that they are all a part of the grand design of things. 
And thus, when everything fell, when the humans broke everything, uh, to use truffle hunter's language, that means the humans broke everything. When Adam and Eve fell, uh, humankind was sunk into a state of sin, but all of creation itself was bent, to use uh, one of Lewis's favorite phrases to describe the effects of sin, is that everything is bent. And one of the great biblical uh, descriptions of this reality comes in Romans 8. I want to read Romans 8, 20 through 25, just to give a sense of this. Paul says uh, in Romans 8, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. So what a great reminder from Paul that all of creation groans for the day of redemption, and that we hope not for what we see in front of us, but what we cannot see. And that is the redemption, not just of our souls, but also of our bodies and the redemption of the cosmos. Sin is a cosmic disease. It is a universal death that when Adam fell, we fell all. And therefore, redemption must be this total uh, enterprise. It cannot be simply the redemption of the individual heart. It is a redemption of all things. Christ is out to reclaim everything that has been bent, which includes all of the cosmos. For God so loved the cosmos that he gave his only son. And so now at the end of the chapter, we arrive at the dancing lawn. And um, I'll close with this beautiful description. Caspian had been asleep longer than he thought. Nearer and nearer came the music, a tune wild and yet dreamy, and the noise of many light feet, till at last out from the wood into the moonlight came dancing shapes, such as Caspian had been thinking of all his life. They were not much taller than dwarfs, but far slighter and more graceful. Their curly heads had little horns, the upper part of their bodies gleamed naked in the pale light, but their legs and feet were those of goats. Fawns, cried Caspian, jumping up, and in a moment they were all round him. It took next to no time to explain the whole situation to them, and they accepted Caspian at once. Before he knew what he was doing, he found himself joining in the dance. Trumpkin, with heavier and jerkier movements, did likewise, and even Truffle Hunter hopped and lumbered about as best as he could. Only Nickabrick stayed where he was, looking on in silence. So just a couple things to note here. First is this uh, undeniable and inconsolable longing that Caspian's had all his life to be a part of fawns dancing in the moonlight. This notion of sin-sooked that Lewis talks about so much and surprised by joy and, and other writings of his. This, this Augustinian ache deep in his heart for the wild things and the true and the good and the beautiful things. And here they are. He sees them in front of him. 
uh, that for which he's been longing all his life. And he is, he finds himself joining the dance as does Trumpkin and Truffle Hunter. Noticeably, Nickabrick stays where he is, pouting, uh, sullen, and, and not participating, not partaking in the beauty of the dance. Um, but interestingly enough, too, Devin Brown mentions uh, something that's quite revealing, <clears throat> revealing that this festive dance to the music of reedy pipes takes place during a time of oppression. That this is not the dancing and celebrating that took place at Caerperavel when everyone was crowned. This is dancing as an act of resistance. This is dancing and jubilation and merriment as an act of strength. The joy of the Lord is our strength, Nehemiah says. And this joy that the fawns bring in their dancing is a joy, of course, at proclaiming Caspian as king, but also a joy as a um, pushback against the tyranny of Miraz. And uh, this is the sort of merriment and dancing of fawns that Tumnus uh, describes to Lucy all the way back in chapter two of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where she comes over for tea. And notice, too, that in Narnian times, Tumnus has been dead for a thousand years. That Tumnus's description of the fawns dancing together is a description that has stood the test of, of a millennium. And here the fawns come bringing mirth and bringing joy and bringing dancing, just like they do um, and have done for all of the legends that Tumnus has told. All the way back in chapter 2, of the line, the witch in the wardrobe. Here's Tumnus describing the dancing fawns to Lucy. He had wonderful tales to tell of life in the forest. He told about the midnight dances and how the nymphs who lived in the wells and the dryads who lived in the trees came out to dance with the fawns. Now remember, the dryads and the naiads have fallen asleep under Miraz's rule, uh, but not for long. They came out to dance with the fawns about long hunting parties after the milk white stag who could give you wishes if you caught him about feasting and treasure seeking with the wild red dwarfs and deep mines and caverns far beneath the forest floor. And then about summer when the woods were green and old Silenus on his fat donkey would come to visit them and sometimes Bacchus himself. And then the streams would run with wine instead of water and the whole forest would give itself up to jollification for weeks on end. Now, hang on to Silenus and Bacchus. We haven't seen the last of them either. But now, of course, we have this convocation of fawns dancing on dancing lawn. Caspian is caught up in the joy of it all as a preparation for war. And the chapter ends. When Caspian awoke next morning, he could hardly believe that it had not all been a dream. But the grass was covered with little cloven hoof marks. Indeed, it is not a dream. It is real. It is the fairy tale come true. The myth become fact. So uh, thank you for listening. Stay tuned next time as we look at chapter seven of Prince Caspian titled Old Narnia in Danger. <laughs>